The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When murder investigators entered the rural farmhouse of loner Ed Gein, just outside the tiny town of Plainfield, Wisconsin, on November 16, 1957, what they found caused the first man to walk into the home to immediately run back out and vomit into the snow. It was like nothing they had ever seen before. It was unlike something any police officer in American criminal history had ever seen before. A scene of outlandish, unimaginable horror. Various body parts stored in various containers, especially skin. So much skin. Human skin crafted into the stuff of nightmares. How could all of this horror come from a slight, soft-spoken, middle-aged, local loner and farmhand? The rest of Wisconsin and then the rest of America would be riveted by the ghoulish deeds of the man who would become to known as the Butcher of Plainfield for the rest of his days. The will of Lucifina is strong in this dark, disgusting, and captivating edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. What's going on, Time Suckers and Space Lizards? Happy Friday. Thanks to all of you who voted for, you know, any of the three topics uh, that ended up uh, being the bonus suck vote for today's topic. And uh, at Time Suck Podcast this past week. Thanks for all the recent reviews and ratings as well. I'm Dan Cummins, and this is Time Suck. And I am truly sorry for the worst Irish accent ever committed to recorded audio that I did last week on the IRA episode. Wow. Uh, made the mistake of trying to learn a real Irish accent, but clearly not trying hard enough. When really, I should have just went with the cartoonish uh, first choice I had in mind, and that was the Lucky Charms commercial cartoon, right? Frosted Lucky Charms, the magically delicious. I should have just went with that dude. But I tried to get more legit and ended up coming out as Crocodile Dundee or some shit. Uh, Got to put uh, more work into that accent. Yikes. Just just know that when Bojangles listened to that episode, I was beaten severely. Uh, I have bite marks. Uh, he pinned me down on the floor. 
uh, put me down on my back, you know, made me submit, even used a mace on me at one point, beat me with a mace. Not modern, spray it in your eyes, stings for a bit, mace. No, medieval spiky metal ball on the end of a chain tied to a stick type of mace. Where did he get it? I don't know. He doesn't tell me. Bojangles hated that Irish accent. A recording from the Suck Lair with Joshua Krell. Just a couple of reverend doctors bringing some sweet suck to your ear tunnels. Uh, Space Lizards, uh, thank you uh, for joining up and for all the updates uh, on how to enjoy the suck. Please check your Patreon emails and Patreon posts. Uh, Thank you for continuing to grow and make the secret suck a lot of fun already as we figure everything out. You guys are the best. So, yeah, just check your Patreon uh, for updates on troubleshooting situations and just uh, everything. Email the app guys at timesuckapp at bitelixir.co for any issues. Time Suck is now officially on YouTube. Uh, some fan already posted most of the Time Suck episodes on YouTube. Uh, thank you, Mystery Uploader. Now all of the episodes are there. If that's where you would like to listen, that's what does it for you. No video for now. Hopefully in the future, uh, working towards that. Just audio uh, out there on the interwebs. Uh, give you more, more places to suck. Both shows in Detroit tonight at the Magic Bag are sold out. Thank you and hail Nimrod. Minneapolis next weekend, March 2nd and 3rd at Sisyphus Brewing. Some of those shows uh, sold out. So get your tickets fast. Brea, California, Cleveland, Ohio, coming up quick in March. Brea Improv, March 8th through the 11th. Hilarities in Cleveland, March 22nd through 24th. More tour dates at dancummins.tv. Big Southern tour in April. Excited for that. Going to give me some fucking sweet tea and some biscuits. More announcements at the end of today's show. Uh, Now, let's suck on some game. So where does a monster like Gein even come from? Let's talk about Plainfield, Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Uh, Plainfield, the name seems particularly well-suited for a place uh, so flat and featureless that even an official state guidebook characterizes it as completely nondescript. That's pretty sad. When, you know, the, the state guidebook is like, nah, just skip it. Uh, Wikipedia also doesn't have much to say uh, about it other than population, geographical location, demographic information, which is every town. Uh, the only thing said about Plainfield is parts of the Werner Herzog film Strosik were shot nearby. Herzog used the Plainfield area to shoot characters staying in a winter-bound barren prairie near the fictional town of Railroad Flats. So basically it was used as uh, location shots for a place that no- <laughs> nobody would like to go to. It's not good, man, when your town is used to film, uh, you know, uh, in film to depict a barren location. There's a list of notable people coming from Plainfield. On that list is Ed Gein several Wisconsin state assemblymen, and Francis Hammerstrom, naturalist and author. Uh, Again, according to Wikipedia, Francis is an ornithologist known for her work with the greater prairie chicken in Wisconsin. For somebody who's not a bird watcher, uh, that seems super boring. What is your specialty again? The greater prairie chicken. Huh. Are, Are those related to the sea chickens that live off the southeastern coast of Florida? You know, you know, those amphibious chickens that lay underwater eggs. You know, the ones whose meat they sell in the chicken of the sea cans, by the tuna cans in the grocery store. What am I talking about? Not, nothing. Old Atlantis episode, time suck reference. I'll show myself out. Uh, the name of Plainfield was bestowed on the town by one of its founding fathers, a transplanted New Englander named Elijah Waterman, who settled there in 1849, put up a 12 by 6 foot shanty, which served as both his home and the area's only hotel, and christened the town in honor of his birthplace in Plainfield, Vermont. Twelve foot by six foot shanty hotel. That's only 72 square feet. I double checked the measurement on that in my primary source for this week's suck, which is deviant true story of Ed Gein, the original psycho by Harold Shetner, uh, Shetner, 
Schechter. There we go. Uh, and it doesn't list feet. It just says a 12 by 6 shanty. But what else would it mean? 12, 12 rooms by 6 rooms? That, that, that makes no sense. 12 inches by 6 inches? How tiny was this Elijah, son of a bitch? It's got to be feet. Talk about a shitty hotel. W- where's my room? I reckon your room is the space uh, there between the wall and Ned. Uh, don't wake him up. Oh, Ned gets fighting mad if you disturb his peaceful slumber. 30 years after that first horrific shanty was thrown up, which sounds, I, I just, again, and he lived there too. So he's, I, I sleep uh, between Ned and the other wall. You sleep between Ned and the corner wall. And then we have some other guests uh, coming to, to lay as best they can uh, around and amongst our feet. It just sounds, what a fucking terrible time to live. Anyway, 30 years after that first shanty was thrown up, the little village of Plainfield boasted several churches, a bank, a weekly newspaper, a variety of businesses, three general stores, two blacksmiths, a drugstore, a tailor shop, a farm implement warehouse. That sounds fun. A grist mill. Grist mill, by the way, is a mill for grinding grain. What the hell did they have to talk about in a weekly paper? How could they come up with new stuff every week? Now, what would be the headline? Breaking news. Slightly less grain was ground in Ned's grist mill this week. Also, Elijah's Hotel is the fucking worst. And, as always, keep an eye out for greater prairie chickens. They are uh, ferocious, and they are everywhere. Uh, Yeah, and the guy who runs that paper is a southerner, apparently. The population remains small, always remaining under 1,000 people. Sounds like my hometown. Uh, Most Plainfieldians have been poor, struggling farmers, toiling to, to rest, even a marginal living out of the dry, stony soil, growing a little rye, raising a little livestock, according to one source, cultivating potatoes that often turned out to be too inferior <laughs> to sell as food and had to be hauled by the wagon load to the local starch factory. It just sounds terrible on all fronts. Even what they named the local lake is sad. There's a big lake on the southeast corner of town, and its name reflects the sterility of the surrounding countryside, Sand Lake. Now it's called Plainfield Lake, which is not much of a name upgrade, really. Uh, the town has a website, plainfieldwiss.com, and it's also very sad. Uh, there's a section for restaurants and taverns, and only one of three restaurants and or taverns listed on the website are actually in Plainfield. Buddha's Bar and Grill. Not Buddha, Buddha. <laughs> and the bar there is open from 11 a.m. to three question marks each day. Swear to God. Uh, I guess it just shuts down when Ned and Buddha... Uh, have had their last lager for the eve. You want another old Milwaukee, Ned? No. Well, I reckon it's closing time then. See you in the morning, Ned. See you in the morning, butter. Uh, there's another section of the website called Recreation, and when you click that, only one business is listed, K&M Sales and Service. And it's not even in Plainfield. It's nearby Hancock, and they sell and service ATVs, snowmobiles, snowblowers, and lawnmowers. And somehow that is offered up as recreation for tourists. So um, what's fun to do around here? Any zip lining? Nope. What about snowmobiling? Uh, snowmobiling. Any place to rent a snowmobile? Nope. You, you can buy one from K&M. That's, that's all the recreation around here, the option to buy a snowmobile. Nope. Y- you can buy a lawnmower too. Yeah, not much happening. In the sleepy little burg, about 65 miles west of Appleton, fires raged through the town on a few occasions, one consuming most of the buildings on Main Street, cyclones, blizzards, Savage Midwestern thunderstorms have taken lives over the years. Again, really, really paint a picture of a great place to live. Uh, thunderstorms have killed cattle, occasionally destroyed entire farms. Men have been shot during hunting accidents, uh, maimed by farm machinery. One man even left paralyzed uh, when his pickup went uh, skidding off an icy road. Sorry, I'm kind of like laughing to myself now. I just started picturing myself like instead of a time suck episode, like what if 
I, I, I had just been hired by like the Plainfield Tourism Bureau, and this is what I sent back to them. Uh, suicide, <laughs> suicides have occurred in Plainfield, uh, as they have in you know a lot of towns that are horrible to live in. Uh, there, there was even um, some murders uh, before Ed Gein showed up. One incident in particular was especially violent and occurred long before Gein was born. Uh, for many years, the nice little community of Plainfield was identified in local history books as the site of a particularly vicious feud that occurred back in 1853. Uh, here's some old Plainfield lore for you. Uh, in 1853, just uh, five years after Elijah built the world's shittiest hotel shed, fucking garden shack, uh, a local squatter with the last name Furman was on a trip to Milwaukee uh, where he met a New Yorker with the surname of Cartwright, right, who was looking to migrate with his family to the Midwest, the territory uh, around Plainfield desperately needed more settlers, and Furman was willing to give Cartwright 40 acres of his own property to entice Cartwright to the area, and Cartwright accepted. So Cartwright and Furman got along for a while, but then Furman got pissed off about something or other, lost a history, and tried to take his property back from Cartwright after the man was living there with his family already. Tried to renege on the on the deal, right? Accused Cartwright of trespassing now. Well, the matter ended up in court, and the case was decided in favor of Cartwright, favor of the newcomer. And Cartwright decided to celebrate by popping into the bar room of the Boyington Hotel in nearby Watoma. And Furman went there as well and found him. And oh, and the feud got going for real. There was an angry exchange of words, and then the bitter Furman leapt upon a seated Cartwright, knocked him out of his chair. Cartwright jumped to his feet, fled the building, where he's chased by Furman, who caught, him, caught up with him, grabbed him, threw him to the ground. They struggled, they wrestled. Furman dug his thumbs into Cartwright's eyes, and that was the last straw for Cartwright, who apparently decided he'd taken enough abuse at the hands of Furman, pulled a pistol out of his back pocket in the days when men, I guess, just casually walked around with pistols in their pockets, as if that's a normal thing to do, and he shot Cartwright three times, killing him. Cartwright was immediately arrested, taken to jail at Oshkosh, where he was released on bail. So feud over, right? I mean, one guy's dead. No. Not even close. This, this feud, this story is just getting going. Well, Cartwright sits in jail. Some friends of Furman, you know, gather together, promise to lynch him if he ever comes back to Plainfield. Cartwright is, tell, is told of the threat, ignores it, returns home. On the second night following his arrival, Furman's old buddies make good on their promise. They form a lynch mob, break into Cartwright's house, and Cartwright's waiting for him. He's armed with his rifle, ready to fire. Then the first of the mob to make it inside the house gets a bullet for his troubles. And, you know, he kills that man instantly. So now it's over, right? Now two guys are dead. Uh-uh. The mob retreats but doesn't give up. They decide to try and burn Cartwright out. They're going to smoke him out of his house. Remember, his wife and kids are in the house as well. I don't even know if I mentioned that. His, he had, the whole family's in there. They, they begin to kindle a fire, the, the, the lynch mob does, at one corner of the house. Cartwright immediately pokes his rifle through a little chink in the logs of this house, shoots and kills another man. Now they've lost two guys. Body count of this land disputes up to three, and you'd think they'd cool off. Not at all. The mob retreats again, still isn't done. One of their members, local lawman, constable, uh, constable uh, goes to the nearby home of a local judge named Walker, who resided in Plainfield. Walker's convinced that if he could persuade Cartwright to turn himself over to the constable, the lynch mob would disperse. Cartwright would be escorted under the constable's protection to the Oshkosh jail, where he would remain until he could be tried for Furman's murder. Well, Walker agrees to do that, you know, what he can to get him out, and he proceeds to talk Cartwright to come out of his house, convinces him to disarm. And then the mob double crosses them. They surround Cartwright immediately uh, and, you know, take him to the center of town in Plainfield where a pole is run up uh, out of the upper story of a tavern's hay barn. The judge, Walker, is told, um, the judge Walker, he's told basically that he can just, you know, uh, he can stay and just enjoy the scene. Um, but keep his, uh, no, I'm sorry. He, no, he was told to get out of there or he's going to be hanged himself. That's right. He, he's not allowed to stay. 
uh, you know, so under fear of death, he leaves, and then they just hang Cartwright right in the middle of the town in front of whoever feels like watching, and then his body is brought back home, dumped off uh, at the at the door front where his wife and kids, you know, are waiting inside. Can you imagine that as a kid, seeing your dad dragged away by an angry mob that has been trying to break into your home, and then a few hours later, your, your dad's dead body just dropped off at your door? That's going to fuck your life up. Do you ever really recover from something like that? I don't think so, from seeing humanity at its absolute worst. And then at an insult to death, no member of the mob has ever tried for Cartwright's murder. And for years, until the crimes of Ed Gein, that will, is what Plainfield was known for. For a crazy feud and an even crazier lynch mob. No winners in that war. Uh, so that's Plainfield. Decided Ed Gein's heinous crimes and deviant behavior. Small, nondescript farming town. Known only for a few uh, more murders, you know, committed decades before Gein's birth. And uh, little Wisconsin prairie town. It gets too hot in the summer, too cold in the winter. Averages a high 25 degrees Fahrenheit in January, low of six. Quiet little town off the beaten path, almost 90 miles from Madison, far from the interstate, where everyone knows everyone else and thinks they know everyone else's business. But no one knew the business of Ed Gein until everybody did. So let's get into that business with a Time Suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Ed Gein is born on August 27, 1906, in La Crosse County, Wisconsin. Second of two boys, George Gein and Augusta Wilhelmine. Uh, Ed's father, George, was an orphan who, who lost his parents and older sister when they were swept away in a flood while trying to cross the Mississippi River in a wagon. Damn old-timey accidents, man. How did your family die? Uh, they were heading to town for supplies, and the river took them. Jesus, man. Uh, George was raised by grandparents living nearby, and following an elementary school education, he dropped out as people did back then often, and became a blacksmith apprentice, spending several years laboring over the anvil and forge. As a young man, George was a down-on-his-luck drifter who bounced from job to job, sold insurance for a while, tried his hand at carpentry, worked in a tannery, uh, worked at the city power plant, and, and on the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railway. Also developed an early drinking problem, uh, blowing most of his paychecks at the tavern. Well, Ed's mother, Augusta, couldn't have been more different from, from his father. Uh, opposites attract, I guess. Uh, she came from a large and industrious family whose dour, demanding patriarch had immigrated from Germany in 1870 and settled in La Crosse. Devoutly, even fanatically religious, she had been brought up to obey a rigid code of conduct, where, which her father had not hesitated to reinforce with regular beatings. Uh, she was, in the end, her father's daughter, a stern disciplinarian, self-righteous, domineering, inflexible, never doubted for a moment the absolute correctness of her beliefs or her right to impose them by whatever means necessary on the people around her. She despised laziness and drunkenness, and somehow she ended up with George. She was, you know, a real joy to be around, as you're going to find out in this suck. Highly judgmental, religious zealot parents. Man, they always seem to raise the best kids, don't they? Uh, God knows what these two saw in each other. A depressed, unambitious drunk and a hard-working, judgmental uh, zealot. But they got married, anyway, in 1899. Uh, a lot more pressure to get married back then and, uh, and to kind of, you know, make a lot more compromises. It's not like lacrosse had some, some bustling single scene. And it was a match made in hell. George drank too much. He was lazy. Couldn't hold down a job. Augusta walked all over him and despised him. You know, so it was true love. Uh, he was a big man in size, uh, broad-shouldered with uh, big old blacksmith muscles, but he was weak in spirit. And so Augusta's domineering tendencies grew unchecked. She had full control of the household and wielded her power ruthlessly. Uh, she'd viciously verbally abuse George, and occasionally he'd physically abuse her, slapping her across the face, dropping her to the floor. Uh, they hated each other, but they stayed together during a time when hating your spouse but staying married was fairly normal. And like people who hate each other often do, they decided to have some kids. That'll fix everything. 
Hey, you know how you want to kill me and I wake up every morning praying for your death? Hopefully a, a slow, painful death. Yeah, so fuck you. Want fuck off and die. Exactly. This is exactly what I'm talking about. I was thinking, what if, now hear me out, what if we have some kids together, right? Worst case, it's a few more people around the house to also hate. You know, it'd be kind of nice to break up the hate and spread it around a bit. I yell at you. You yell at the kids. The kids, you know, uh, they, they yell at you. You hit the kids. I hit you. You knock me out cold. I mean, you know, well, it sounds fun. What do you say? Well, even though she found sex disgusting and the work of the devil, hail Lucifina, uh, she wanted kids and reluctantly let George uh, stick it in her. Uh, her first child, Henry, was born in 1902. And then, of co- uh, course, Ed was born four years later. And Ed would be Augusta's baby. And not being close to her husband, she'd become very emotionally close to Ed. And she basically uh, was especially determined not to let the world corrupt her sweet baby, which is incredibly ironic considering how corrupted he would become. Now, this relationship would become the basis for the relationship between Norman Bates and his mother in the famous Alfred Hitchcock horror film Psycho. And, and honestly, it, their relationship uh, reminds me a lot of my own mother and myself. I mean, uh, my mom used to tell me uh, all the time as a kid, you know, she'd say, Danny, you know, stay away from the wickedness of women, especially their trampy filth holes. You, you might think you're just putting your evil little meat stick in there, but really you're putting your soul in that harlot's sin tunnel, and you'll never get it back. Damnation. That's what mom would say all the time, just damnation. She'd say eternal damnation is what awaits in that crevice. So you tell those hussies to keep their legs shut. Keep their sin slit away from my sweet, innocent baby boy. And then she'd hug me for a long, long time and weep. And then she'd really press my face deep into her cleavage so I had a hard time breathing. And then we'd both sob for a while. And then we'd snuggle up in bed and we'd fall asleep. You know? Man. God. Memories. You know? <laughs> it's, been, it's been months since we've done that, really. God, moms, huh? What a, what a silly bunch of goofballs they are. Anyway, enough about my mom. Let's talk about Augusta. Especially since the stuff about my mom was nothing but lies and drivel. 1909. In 1909, uh, Augusta's husband, unable to hold down a job, she gets a family job for him. Two of her brothers had opened up some successful grocery stores in La Crosse, and she talked them into letting George open up a new franchise. So in 1909, George Gein becomes a proprietor of a small meat and grocery shop at 914 Caledonia Street. And within two years, George has fucked up enough to go from being listed as the owner of this new store to being listed as a clerk. Augusta is now listed as the owner, highly unusual for the time in the area for the uh, wife and not the husband to be listed in this manner. It says a lot about their relationship. Uh, Ed would later remember her mom doing everything at the store. She waited on the customers, handled the cash register, kept the books. Meanwhile, Ed's father shuffled about the store in a shrunken, defeated way, rearranging the goods on the shelves according to Augusta's directions, occasionally delivering some groceries. Ed thought of his mother as, as uh, more God than woman. He claimed many years later after being captured for his crimes to still think she was perfect. When she yelled at him as a, as a child, told him only a mother could love such a dreadful child, he'd cry not because he was verbally abused. He'd cry because he was so disappointed in himself for letting such a good, virtuous woman down. Why couldn't he be a better kid for his amazing mom? Uh, but somehow, you know, he just always seemed to fail her. Uh, from early childhood into his middle age, Ed placed all his reliance on Mama. She and she alone could be counted on to rescue him from life's many evils and dangers. Mama knew best. Mother always knew best. By 1913, uh, Augusta had managed the store well enough to save up some money to buy a farm, and so that's what they did. Uh, There was a good living to be made from dairy cows and rye, and Augusta also wanted to get herself and her family, particularly little Eddie, far away from the evil influences of the big city of La Crosse, Wisconsin. A metropolis full of taverns and whoring harlots trying to tempt 
her husband George into doing more wrong. A city that would corrupt her sweet boys for certain, Eddie and Henry. A city of over 30,000 people. A regular Gotham, so urban and full of big city problems. So late that year, the Gaines moved into a dairy farm in the lowlands near Camp Douglas, about 40 miles east of La Crosse. And then in 1914, uh, the Gaines clan made their second and final move, for reasons unknown, to a 195-acre farm in Plainfield, known to locals as the old John Greenfield place. Now, John Greenfield was a chicken rancher who gained a little local fame for having a high percentage of two-headed roosters. So he opened a little tourist stop in 1907 called Johnny Two Cocks. And then he lost a business in a card game, in a poker game, uh, to two brothers uh, who were both named Richard. And, the, and they renamed the establishment Double Dicks Two Cocks. And then uh, they were given some money by an investor by the name of Hans Balls. And the establishment was rechristened once again, Double Dicks Two Cock and Balls. And if you still believe any of this, God bless you. Just know that you make me happier than any of the other listeners. Everything, everything about that was horseshit uh, other than the Gein family really did buy a farm known as the John Greenfield Place. I wish it was true. I wish it was known as Double Dicks, Two Cock, two cock and Balls, and it was a bunch of two-headed roosters. That'd be fucking amazing. Okay. At a time when property ownership was almost entirely in the hands of men, uh, land records show that the Plainfield Farm was purchased uh, by and deeded to not George, but Augusta Gein. Uh, when they, why they moved again is unclear, but probably because land was cheaper in Plainfield, they were able to get more of it. Uh, you know, uh, maybe they were able to get one of a, like the nicer homes in the area. They did get a pretty nice house, maybe just to get further away from sinners. Uh, the family of four moved into a trim, two-story, L-shaped, white frame building with a parlor, a kitchen, a pair of bedrooms on the first floor, five more rooms upstairs. The outbuildings included a fair-sized barn, chicken coop, uh, where John stored all those two-headed roosters I made up earlier, uh, an equipment shack. There was also a shed-like summer kitchen that had been built onto one end of the house with a connecting door opening into the regular kitchen. A summer kitchen. I'd never heard of that before. I'd look, at, I'd look into it. At its most basic level, a summer kitchen physically just separates hot kitchen activities from the rest of a home during the warm summer months. You know, it's a, it a great way to survive the summer before the uh, invention of modern air conditioning. Summer kitchens also reduce the risk of house fires and provide a private place for parents to teach their kids to both construct and wear human masks, uh, excuse me, to wear masks uh, made out of human skin. Two of those last three statements about summer kitchens are true. You decide which two to believe. Uh, in addition to being a nice home, Augusta also liked that it was, you know, isolated. The farm was actually uh, situated six miles west of Plainfield, a significant distance in the days of dirt roads and wagon travel. Their nearest neighbors were the Johnson family, whose farmhouse was located a little less than a quarter mile down the road. Uh, during the fall of 1914, little Eddie began attending the Rosha Cree Days uh, grade school, a tiny one-room building with a dozen students. Later, Rosha Cree merged with another country school, the White School, and it was there that Eddie Gein completed his formal education at age 16 after graduating from the eighth grade. Uh, so, you, you know, I guess maybe not, not a quick learner. 16, eighth grade. That doesn't sound great. He was, he was a capable if unexceptional student who managed well enough in, in all his subjects. Years later when he was captured, his IQ would be tested and recorded as average, kind of low average. Uh, I keep wanting to take an IQ test out of curiosity, but honestly, uh, a little worried about the results. You know, I don't know if any good can come from it. What if I took it and the results came back way below average? Is that a terrible day or is that a great day? Do you feel terrible now that you know for sure that most of the world is smarter than you? Or do you feel great that you've been able to make your own way in life despite being a moron? Well, uh, Eddie did okay in school, didn't have much of a social life, though, and Augusta was to blame for that. Little Eddie would come home and tell his mom about some new friend he made, and she would immediately, immediately just raise objections. You know, the boy's family had a bad reputation. 
There were dark rumors about the father's past. The, the mom had questionable virtue. You know, Augusta wouldn't, wouldn't uh, have some son of hers associating with dirtbags like that. How could Eddie behave in such a way? You know, she'd scream at him. You know, was she raising a fool? So Eddie became a bit of a loner. He also got labeled as a bit of a weirdo as well. Uh, classmates would later recall that he, that he was much more effeminate than the other boys, laughed at odd times, kind of in his own little world. Of course he was. Uh, creeped girls out with the way he just intently, quietly stared at him or stared at them. Now, that's strange to me. I, I thought girls liked to be quietly stared at. Uh, so I don't know if I'm right or wrong on that, I guess. I, I tell my son, Kyler, that if he likes some girl at school, you know, just quietly stare at her. Uh, don't talk to her. You know, just stare at her. Just very, like a, like a lot, often. And intensely, for long periods of time, uh, if she notices you staring, you know, then smile uh, and just keep staring. Uh, now, when she, when, when she tells him, you know, or if she tells him to look away, don't look away. It's part of the game. Just lick your lips like you're a hungry dog. And just keep staring. And then later, when she uh, is doing something else, you know, you know, I told Kyler he should sneak up behind her and just quietly sniff her hair. God, girls love it if you sneak up behind them and quietly sniff their hair. Don't touch them. Don't touch them. Just gently sniff their hair and just whisper something fun like, oh, that's nice. Oh, that's so clean and so pure. So clean. So pure. So I guess maybe I'm giving bad advice. I don't know. You know, live and learn, I guess, on the suck. Live and learn. Anyways. Young Gein always had a crooked little grin on his face, even when it didn't fit the conversation. Uh, he cried easily, couldn't take a joke. When he, when he occasionally teased, like, you know, all kids are at some point or another, he withdrew even further. You know, the teasing just reaffirmed what, what sweet mama was telling him. The world was a cruel, wicked place, full of wicked people. Home life, you know, rough for Eddie. His father was, uh, you know, getting drunk on a regular basis. Separation from the city, just many drank at home now instead of a bar. And while he still let his wife Augusta be in charge at home and verbally abuse him, uh, you know, he'd still periodically, you know, physically beat her and the kids. When Eddie and Henry were too big to be beaten, then he would just get drunk and yell at them. Uh, for some shit icing on the shit cake, uh, the Geens were also very, very poor. As I mentioned when describing Plainsfield earlier, the soil was not the best for farming. No matter how doggedly the family worked the land, their hard scrabble farm yielded barely enough food to provide for the family's substance year after year. The fruitless struggle with the soil was a backbreaking job, particularly since George could no longer be counted on to do his share of the work. By the time Eddie stopped going to school after the eighth grade, he was, he was cut off from all social contacts, completely separated from life in town, condemned to an existence of crushing poverty in a remote and desolate region with two highly dysfunctional parents. Uh, Eddie, not emotionally strong to begin with, retreated further into a private world of fantasy, which is, we will find out soon, not good for anyone. Further damaging Eddie's psyche during his adolescence was his mother, Augusta's opinion of women. Augusta began to focus her energy more and more as her boys grew older on the wickedness of modern women. She wanted to protect her boys, you know, from, from newspaper photos and magazine illustrations. She knew that the way they dressed with their short skirts and their powders and their lipsticks, they were tainted, fallen creatures. And the women of Plainfield, she would admonish her sons, were the worst of all women. So she'd read to them from a regular, at a, at a, on a regular basis. From the book of Revelations, always, always a fun, fun book of the Bible. It's, you know, and she would just, you know, read to them from the, from Revelations as all super fun moms like to do. Uh, she'd read uh, stuff such as chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. And the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness where I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. 
Good times on the farms with mom, huh? Nothing like a little fire and brimstone. A little, little talk about sin. Turn a house, you know, into a warm, cozy home. <laughs> warm, warmed up by the very fires of hell and eternal damnation. Uh, she had also committed some of Proverbs chapter 5 to memory. This is, I guess, one of her favorite things to recite. You know, she'd say this, The lips of a strange woman drop honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But her latter end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, therefore, my sons, hearken unto me, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not near the door of her house. For why shouldest thou, my son, be ravaged with a strange woman, and embrace the bosom of a stranger? What, my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings." Uh, not sure which Bible she used for that. It's not the King James Version. Uh, that message gets softened up a lot in that one. But it's, it does still say that adulteresses uh, still lead men to death and ruin. I say, sounds like a fun way to go out. Sounds sexy. We're all going to die anyway. Why not have some uh, good times before you go? Hail, Lucifina. I mean, be gone, Lucifina, or something. You you and your sexy temptations. Go on, get out of here. Get out of this suck, damn it. Anyways, uh, Augusta, obviously a serious Debbie Downer. So not fun at all. I don't know how you ever learn to date with a mom like that. You know, where just all women are whores and harlots. Uh, after the Proverbs prayer, Augusta would, would reach down and, and take each of her sons, uh, you know, uh, by the hand. She would make them swear to her that they would keep themselves uncontaminated by women. If their lust became too pressing to resist, she would say e- even the sin of Onan was preferable to the vileness of fornication. Now, there's been a lot of debate over what the sin of Onan is, uh, you know, just in history, uh, but a lot of Protestant Christians uh, have interpreted it as masturbation. Uh, some have interpreted it as pulling out, the old coitus interruptus, a contraceptive technique as well. In this context, seems like Mommy Dearest is just telling her son she would rather have them jerk off, even though that is gross to her, than to have them, you know, shacking up and defiling themselves with some local girl. Again, what a lady. What a lady. Telling her filthy pig sons she'd rather have them disgrace themselves by, by tugging their little shamecocks by sticking it to some town whore. Why you say shamecock in this suck? What what big deal? This suck time for gain to shine. No need for me to take shamecock spotlight. Please could continue. Chikatilo very interested in this tale. This uh, this sucks sweet bedtime story for Chikatilo. Think about the childhood environment for gain, man. You know, again, uh, it does remind me of home. Not not joking this way. It reminds me of some homeschool kids that I grew up uh, with around Idaho. They they weren't just living in a tiny Idaho town. But they were, like, alone, just isolated, like, on some farm or ranch outside of this tiny little town of 500 people I grew up with. Completely socially ostracized. I remember seeing one kid. I only saw him, like, a few times. Once was at a sleepover, and he was the one kid who, of course, got picked up uh, by his by his mom because he couldn't take the horrible things we were talking about. Like, no joke. We were we were talking about something naughty, and it just, oh, it just disgusted him, that this, the sin that was happening, and he had to be picked up by his mommy. And driven home, which of course made all of us hate him forever. Um, but yeah, these kids, no internet, no TV, not even a radio. And uh, same thing with the Gaines, man. Just, just you know, they had, they had nothing back then. No internet, no TV, no radio. Just, you know, just brother, mom, and dad. And a lot of talk about sinning. Sounds like, sounds like hell. Sounds like true hell on earth. Uh, it would be hard for any kid to deal with this kind of shit. Henry apparently struggled a bit more against Augustus' teachings than, than Ed did. And on a few occasions during late adolescence, he actually made uh, some some attempts to socialize with local girls that were, of course, doomed by Mama. Uh, but he did have a few, like, you know, budding potential romances at least. 
But in the end, his his will was no match for his mother's. And finally, he just resigned himself to bachelorhood, a condition that was uh, very characteristic of Augusta's male relations. Several of her brothers never took wives, never dated, and Augusta's two sons would remain forever uh, um, unattached, bound to no other woman but their mother for as long as they lived. That is so fucking sad. Uh, between 1914 and 1940, not a lot happened in Ed Gein's life. He worked on the farm. He stayed at uh, home almost all the time, got lectured a lot on sinfulness, listened to his dad yell about this or that, watch his dad get drunk and try to beat his mom, sold enough crops to survive but not thrive. In over 25 years, they, they didn't ever make enough money to add a single renovation to their home. Paint's peeling now. The wood's looking rough. And then on April Fool's Day, April 1st, first, excuse me, 1940, uh... Ed pulled a joke on his mom by wearing his brother's face for a skin mask. Ha ha, mom, look, it's, it's me and Henry on the same face. April Fools. I'm not really Ed. I'm Henry. Get it? <laughs> this is his face. I, I killed him for the joke. No. On April 1st, George Gein, uh, the father, died of, a heart, of heart failure caused by his alcoholism. Nice obituary was written up for him in the local paper, and then life went on. Ed is now 33. Henry is 38. Still live at home with mama. Still no plans to ever leave the nest. Deadbeat, drunken dad dies, and life is no better. You know, I get living at home to save money in your 30s if the plan is to leave soon, or if you're taking care of like a sick family member, or if you're sick, you know, and being taken care of by a family member. But if you're just, if you just never left the nest and you're living, you know, there with like a sibling or siblings who've also never left the nest, that is fucking creepy. That's creepy with a capital F. Get out, make your own way. You know, for God's sake, you get one shot down here on earth. And that's how you're going to use it? Live with mommy and daddy? Some weird man-child? Henry and Ed are, are physically in their 30s, but clearly emotionally around like 10 or 11. You know, they, they don't even date. They do start heading into town. Uh, Ed, Ed and Henry pick up the occasional odd job after dad dies, help him with some harvesting here, help him patch a roof or install a new window there, painting, repairing fences. Uh, for a brief time, Ed and Henry opened up a little rub-and-tug massage parlor. That never really took off, you know? Just kind of typical country stuff. 1942, Ed is called by Uncle Sam to sign up for World War II, even though he's 36 years old. Uh, he travels to Milwaukee, 130 miles away, doesn't pass his physical. He's got a small growth on his left eyelid, which causes his eyelid to slightly sag, uh, obscuring his vision just a bit, and that was enough to make him ineligible to go to war. So he returned home, and the next time he'd venture that far from home would be when he was finally arrested for murder and other crimes. Oh, and I, uh, and I should mention that Ed and Henry never opened a rub-and-tug massage parlor. Uh, he was never giving happy endings, uh, never giving hand jobs to freshly masseused, uh, massaged farmhands. That's nonsense. But uh, not actually as creepy as what he would get up to. Uh, not even close. And then on May 16th, 1944, Ed may have committed his first murder. That day, he and his brother Henry were battling a little marsh fire on the property, just burning some grass. You know, they did part of the farming process, a totally normal thing to do. And then after putting out the fire, Ed claims he couldn't find Henry. And he went into town to gather a search party to come look for his brother. Well, that night, uh, Ed leads uh, local deputy, deputy sheriff Frank Engel directly to Henry's body, the body he supposedly couldn't find, you know, the brother he couldn't find. You know, very odd. Uh, Henry was laying face down over a patch of burned grass, but there was no burn marks on him at all. He also had some unusual bruising on his forehead. Uh, maybe Ed accidentally killed his brother because he thought Henry was some kind of trespasser. Maybe he couldn't see right. Maybe he, maybe he never, maybe just mistook him, you know? Maybe he never went to an optometrist because he lived in a desolate shithole where they didn't have, you know, proper doctors. If only he had access to today's sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Simple Contacts. 
you guys know how busy I am doing this suck. It's hard to find time to even go to the doctor. And now my vision is getting a little fuzzy because I spend way too much uh, time, way too many hours in front of a computer screen. So I have to tell you guys about my newest time-saving trick. I got my contact lenses uh, prescription. Uh, I got them, I got it from, you know, uh, from the suck dungeon just the other day in under five minutes using an awesome new app called Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts lets you renew your prescription and reorder your brand of lenses from anywhere in minutes through an online self-guided vision test that even I was not too dumb to take. Uh, every test is designed and reviewed by, by real doctors, so they're literally uh, bringing the doctor's office to your home. Better yet, the contact lens prices are unbeatable. Vision test, only 20 bucks. Shipping is free. Bam. Hail Nimrod. Just remember, this isn't a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. Nope, the Simple Contact app just takes seconds to download, walks you through every step. Some eye doctor slash vision wizard and some Simple Contacts underground laboratory somewhere, you know, goes over everything and then gets you your contacts. It's a very easy process. Best of all time, suckers get $30 off their first Simple Contacts order. So just go to simplecontacts.com slash timesuck or enter the code timesuck at checkout. Again, that's simplecontacts.com slash timesuck. Enter the code timesuck at checkout. $30 off your contacts, right? Uh, the link will be in the episode description. And now back to our regularly scheduled psychopathic murderer. Okay, so no one, you know, uh, even though, you know, the, the circumstances of Henry's death, a little, little suspicious, no one locally thought Ed capable of murdering his brother at the time. So it really wasn't investigated. You know, sometimes farmers did drop dead fighting fires. Uh, so, you know, no, no proper investigations done. Officially, the cause of death is listed as asphyxiation, most likely from smoke. Uh, but did Eddie whack him in the head, knock him out, leave him in a place for him to die of the smoke? You know, did they have some kind of fight, some Cain and Abel type shit? You know, although he still, still also lived at home, Henry did find Eddie's relationship with their mom to be unnatural. Even even Henry thought it was odd. You know, and this is this is a guy who's almost 40 living at home with mama, and even he thinks it's weird <laughs> how strange the relationship is between his brother and mama. So did they argue about sweet Augusta? No one will ever know. Uh, shortly after Henry's death, no doubt brought on by grief, Augusta suffered a stroke and spent some time in a local hospital. Uh, Eddie was at her side every day for as many visiting hours as was allowed. She was discharged eventually into his care. He took care of his mom at home, nursed her back to health. Uh, he was actually exhilarated by the chance to prove his worth to mama. By mid-1945, Augusta had regained enough of her health to get around on her own, uh, which wasn't good for her health because it enabled her to uh, get back out into the world and see some more sinning and get so stressed out that she had another stroke, and then this one killed her. She wanted to go with Eddie to a neighbor and buy some straw to use as fodder for feeding some cattle. And apparently, as Eddie would later recount, we just have, have only his word for this story, when they arrived at the neighbor's home, some dude with the last name of Smith, uh, he, this guy is beating a puppy to death in front of the house. Seriously, like to death. That's not even one of my outrageous shock value uh, side roads. Eddie claimed that he and Ma showed up, and then there's Smith literally beating a puppy with a stick, and then some woman, leaving with Smith, uh, runs out, starts screaming wildly for him to stop. And this woman um, was living with Smith, but they weren't married. And Augusta became so distressed, not by the sight of an actual puppy being beaten to death in front of her. She is so distressed by the sight of carnal sin in front of her, represented by the sight of this woman living out of wedlock with her neighbor. She called this woman Smith's harlot. And she spent the next week ranting and raving about hell and damnation you know, Smith and his harlot were earning themselves a trip to hell, lasts forever, and then she has a stroke and dies. I shit you not. She dies at the hospital at the age of 67 on December 29th, 1945. How fucking crazy is that? You witness some poor little puppy 
being beaten to death with a stick. And what outrages you is that the woman begging the man not to kill the puppy is having sex with that man out of wedlock. Side note, if you beat a puppy to death with a stick, you are the worst. Truly a disgusting human being. Uh, do it as a kid. Maybe there's hope for you. Do it as an adult. A puppy? Not sure you're capable of sliding back into the good person human category. Unless, of course, you're stomping Cocker Spaniels to appease Nimrod. Hail Nimrod! Nimrod demands what he demands, and we are only left to obey his will. Who are we to question Nimrod's Cocker Spaniel puppy stomping wisdom? Anyway, Augusta was given an obituary in the Plainfield Sun. A real sad one. Uh, Mrs. Augusta Gein died at the Wild Rose Hospital on December 29th of cerebral brain hemorrhage. The body was brought back to Galt Funeral Home, where services were held December 31st. Reverend C.H. Weiss officiating. She is survived by her one son, Edward, who lives on the home farm southwest of here and is creepy as shit. I added the creepy as shit part. Well, guess there must have been a lot happening that week in Plainfield for them to give her such a tiny obituary. You know, they just didn't have room. Uh, try anything else, with, you know, with all the weather stuff and, uh, you know, weather, weather-related weather stuff going on. They had to talk about that week. Picture Ed. Hey, how come my mom didn't get a bigger write-up? Well, Ed, we had a real busy uh, week here in Plainfield. It snowed on Tuesday. Uh, supposed to be four inches, but we got closer to five. So that took up a lot of the paper right there. And, and well, there was an incident at the Schoenheit Ranch. What incident? Well, you, you probably didn't hear about it with your grieving and all, but they had a heifer damn near get loose. It almost knocked a fence post out of old Blaine McAllister, uh, uh, his, his ranch, his fence post, you know, uh, almost knocked it out. And then when he, when he tried to, to put it back in, he got some kind of cramp in his leg, and uh, he, uh, he, he thought he had a stroke. Oh, oh, oh that's terrible. Did he have, did he have a stroke? No, he, he, didn't, he didn't have a stroke. He was just dehydrated, it turns out, but he, but he could have. And, and, you know, that, I mean, that story alone took almost both whole pages of our paper. Uh, the obituary was painfully short for someone who lived in that tiny area damn near her whole life. For some contrast, check out George's obituary from a few years before, also in the Plainfield Sun. George Gein, 66, was born on August 4th, 1873, and passed away on April 1st, 1940. His mother and father and little sister preceded him in death. They were gone to town, and he was staying home because of the high water as it was raging in the Mississippi River. The father, mother, and sister never returned, leaving him an orphan boy. This flood occurred in Vernon County a good many years ago. He lived in La Crosse until 1914, then going to Plainfield, where he has since resided. He is survived by his wife and two sons, Henry and Edward. He has suffered considerably for the past three years, but his sufferings were eased by his faith in God. He was a good husband and father and will be missed by all who knew him. A lot of nice things to say about George, who couldn't have been that well-liked, right? He was a fucking angry, drunk loner. <laughs> but compared to Augusta, much more well-liked. Clearly, the old self-righteous battle axe uh, was, you know, not, not a, not a um, welcomed member of the community. So now Eddie Gein, who has spent his entire life under his mother's watchful, judgmental eye, is alone, a man-child, a strange mama's boy, left utterly by himself, and shit starts to get real weird at the old Gein homestead. Outwardly, to the community, Ed Gein doesn't change uh, much after his mother's death. He's still a bit awkward. Still shy, but but he's also still willing to help a neighbor split some firewood, bale some hay, fix whatever, uh, you know, anyone's asking him to fix. He's there to help fix a broken down car, does a fair amount of babysitting, uh, which looking back is super creepy. Uh, clearly, though, if locals were letting Eddie babysit their kids, they had no idea at all what he was, you know, what it was really going on within at home. 
Uh, Ed's hygiene did take a noticeable dip after Mama's passing. He was never a looker, never a ladies' man, but he was at least clean-shaven when Mama was alive, at least uh, didn't stink. Uh, shopkeepers would later state that he stopped shaving regularly and that he smelled like he could definitely use a bath. Uh, after Mama's passing, the local barber, James Severns, regarded Eddie with disdain, later describing him uh, after his mother's passing as a filthy thing. Uh, the few people who stopped by at the farm noticed things had gotten even more dilapidated there, while Augusta never had money to fix up the place, she at least kept it clean. Now that she was gone, Eddie stopped doing pretty much anything at all to make it look nice. Uh, you know, just imagine like a, like a 12-year-old boy just left alone to run a house. Imagine what that would look like after a couple of years. He stopped uh, doing pretty much anything at all to make it look good. Stop mowing the lawn, stop farming the land, just stop putting anything away inside the house. You know, stop putting food away. Equipment, you know, sits out in the yard and rust. Fucking kitchen stinks. Uh, Eddie supported himself by leasing some of the land uh, of his families to neighboring farmers, doing a little odd job here and there around town and, and collecting some government assistance. And when harvest time came, he, you know, he'd pick up a little extra work that way as well. And, and apparently not everyone looked down on him in that regard. Local named uh, Floyd Reed later would describe him as the most dependable person in the county when it came to doing some farm work. That he was hardworking, quiet, never cursed, never spoke out of turn, and was well-mannered. Uh, other workers, though, did think he was odd. He was described by others as girlish and squeamish, didn't like hunting, which was atypical for men of the area at that time. Said he didn't like the sight of blood, which is hard to believe considering what he started getting up to at home. Uh, couldn't stand to see an animal dressed out, which is also hard to believe, considering what he'd be doing at home. Uh, he was reading a lot about violence at home. Got real into true crime magazines after Mama passed. Uh, remember how the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, Time Suck Topic for episode 51, was also into those crime mags? Uh, well, not only did Eddie start reading these, he uh, issues of magazines called Inside Crime and Startling Detective. He also started talking a lot about their tales of lust and murder to whoever would listen. And it creeped people out enough to have them recall this fascination of his when he got caught, you know, a couple years later. After his mother's passing, Gein began to leave home a bit to socialize for the first time in his life. He became a regular at Mary Hogan's Tavern, a little hole-in-the-wall beer joint seven miles down the road in the blink-and-you-will-missed-it community of Pine Grove. Doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. It's unincorporated. Uh, he wasn't interested in the beer, uh, but he was very interested in the middle-aged German lady who ran the place, Mary Hogan. She was a stocky, formidable woman who reminded Ed of his mama. She was also very different than Augusta. You know, uh, she would have never been caught dead in a bar. Uh, she was rumored to have a shady past. She was twice divorced, rumored to have run a brothel in Chicago years before where she supposedly had mob connections. And then when he's not at Mary's Tavern, Eddie's home alone, beginning to obsess over some very peculiar fantasies. He becomes fascinated with the World War II veteran he's read about who had traveled to Denmark to have a sex reassignment surgery. Eddie fantasized about what he'd look like as a woman. Uh, he'd been fantasizing about that since he was a small child, but never was able to indulge those fantasies. He also never even uh, knew exactly what a vagina looked like when mom was around. You know, dude in his 30s has no idea what a vagina looks like. Uh, now he's able to buy essentially some very soft porn in the form of these pulp crime mags, some of which feature you know, drawings of nude women. Uh, he also uh, becomes obsessed with Nazi war crimes. Can't get enough of the tales of torture and death. Lucifina has begun to take hold of, of little Eddie. Uh, he becomes really obsessed with death, cutting out the obituary section of local papers and saving the cuttings. Uh, he reads pulp tales of cannibalism, you know, any kind of murder he can find. He searches the paper for tales of car accidents and for tragedy. Uh, he has few visitors and feels increasingly alone in the world. And he starts to become a little mentally unhinged. Starts hearing voices around the farm from time to time. Starts to feel like he's, he's being watched here and there. His mind is playing tricks on him. He misses Mama terribly. Nothing has seemed totally real since she's passed. And then on December 8th, 18, or 1954, that tavern owner, Mary Hogan, disappears. 
Uh, a local farmer named Seymour Lester uh, walks into the tavern that afternoon, is immediately struck by the eerie silence. He notices a pool of blood on the floor and, and rushes off to the, to the closest farm where he calls Villas Waterman, the sheriff of Pine Grove. And Villas and the sheriff of Stevens Point both arrive and, and find a, a spent 32 caliber cartridge on the floor next to some blood. Uh, the patch of the blood has been streaked as if a body has been dragged through it. A blood trail leads to the parking lot where it stops abruptly as if the body has been dragged to the car and then driven away. Uh, the state crime lab in Madison is contacted. They come and dust the tavern crime scene for fingerprints and other clues. An alert is transmitted to Chicago police where Hogan used to live. Nothing generates any leads, and a year goes by with no developments in the case. On December 8th, 1955, the one-year anniversary of Mary's disappearance, the front page of the Plainfield Sun reads, What Happened to Mary Hogan? The paper runs the same headline uh, a year later in 1956, and the 1956 column in the paper reads, after two full years, complete mystery surrounds the disappearance of Mary Hogan, who apparently was shot and dragged from her town of Pine Grove Tavern on December 8, 1954. Nothing, absolutely nothing has come to light, and the questions concerning the whereabouts of Mary Hogan's body are as unknown today as they were on that bleak December day when a neighbor stepped into the tavern to find a strangely silent building and a pool of blood splotched on the floor. Uh, following the disappearance of Mary Hogan, a series of crimes took place in the Almond area some miles to the east, but along the same highway. Other crimes were committed at Wild Rose and at Plainfield. Some of these crimes were partly solved by the confessions of a town uh, of, of an Almond man. Uh, but insofar as the Mary Hogan case is concerned, it is still complete uh, a complete and deep dark mystery. Speculation is still rife about what happened to her, and people still talk about Mary Hogan. Was it something out of her past that caught up with her? Or was it just plain local hoodlums who perpetrated the crime? Was the body of Mary Hogan taken away and cremated somewhere as people surmise? Or does the body of Mary Hogan lie rotting in some uh, lonely town of Pine Grove or some nearby area grave? The authorities don't know. No one knows. That is, except the murderers themselves. Dun, dun, dun. What happened to Mary? Well, uh, turns out she would not be rotten in the ground anywhere. Uh, it was much, much more disgusting than that. Um, some locals Eddie worked for at a farmhand, as, as a farmhand on Little Odd Jobs knew he liked Mary, knew he liked to visit her at the tavern, and a variety of locals would later recall him saying some creepy shit when they'd ask Eddie about her. Uh, he, he would say, she's at the farm right now, and he'd grin his odd, crooked little grin. I went and get her in my pickup and took her home. Pretty ballsy. Or pretty insane, considering he did actually uh, pick her up and take her home. Uh, weird rumors began to circulate about uh, who was Eddie's uh, at Eddie's home around that time as well. Various local kids who stopped by to visit would later claim that Eddie had some uh, preserved human heads at the house. Uh, they assumed they were fake, some kind of Halloween getup. Some said the heads were shrunken. Others said they were full size. And like with Mary's disappearance, when local adults would uh, you know ask about him, uh, he'd admit it. He'd say, oh, yeah, I keep him in the bedroom. You know, just shit like that. And, but he was just so strange and odd, people just thought he was joking. So the Gein home uh, began to gather a reputation uh, amongst locals as a haunted house. This is before his capture. And then on November 16, 1957, another disappearance rocks the local community. 58-year-old Plainfield hardware store owner and widow Bernice Warden disappears. She was last seen at the store that morning by her son Frank, and then she vanishes. When Frank heard from another local that afternoon that he'd seen Bernice's truck leave town that morning and that she hadn't returned since, but that she'd left the lights on in the store, he was instantly concerned. And then he checked the store and found a similar scene uh, to the one at Mary Hogan's Tavern. 
right? A pool of blood on the floor, trail of blood, you know, it's like a body's been dragged through it that led to the back door where it abruptly stopped after, you know, a few feet outside as if, uh, you know, she'd been wounded and then dragged out to a vehicle and driven away. Again, just like Mary. So Frank called the police, and as soon as they arrived, he blamed Ed Gein, saying he's done something to her. And he explained to the police that Ed had been creeping out his mom recently, hanging around the store a lot, asking her to go roller skating with him or to go dancing, go watch a movie. You know, (laughs) the day before, yeah, just weird stuff. When Ed had come by, he'd asked Frank if Frank was going to go hunting today, and Frank told him he was. And now he realized that Ed was trying to figure out if Bernice would be alone, uh, and he was right. Uh, Bernice's last sales transaction was also still laying on the counter, and it was a a receipt for some antifreeze sold to one Ed Gein. So local authorities immediately want to find Ed, you know, and question him. And, uh, and he makes their job incredibly easy. He just shows up at the crime scene uh, right after Frank gets there uh, before they even had to take off to find him. The, the, some kid, some child of one of Eddie's neighbors heard about the Bernice disappearance, heard there was a bunch of cop cars in town. There's big fuss going on, you know, and he wanted to come into town and check it out, you know, find out what the what the uproar was about. And uh, and Ed happened to be um, having dinner at that farm neighbor's house. They were just, you know, doing a kindness for him, letting him have dinner with him. And when the kid asked, you know, he wants to go into town, Ed offers to drive him in. And when he gets there, he is immediately taken in for questions. And then some other investigators take off to search his house and his property for the body of Bernice. And what they find inside Ed Gein's home is truly some super scary stuff. Super scary stuff. Okay. If you have kids and let them listen to the show, uh, I love it. Uh, I let mine listen to select episodes and you're letting them listen to this episode, you may want to let them tap out for this segment. This segment is a stuff of nightmares. It is truly horrific and utterly disturbing, even by time suck standards. Ed Gein's home was a preposterous house of horrors, like like something out of an over-the-top B-horror movie. In addition to the movie Psycho being based on slash inspired by the life and crimes of Ed Gein, the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, also inspired partly by Gein, uh, particularly the character of Leatherface, Wears a mask of human skin. Character of Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs, partially based on Gein. You know, that whole, would you fuck me? Uh, I'd fuck me. You know, that guy? The one dancing in front of the mirror with his wiener tucked between his legs. The one who wanted to create a woman suit out of human skin. Well, investigators, they, they first walked into the door in that home. Uh, they found that the only door that was unlocked was the one leading to that summer kitchen. You know, it was dark outside now. And they, when they panned their flashlights around, they found Bernice's body. But it took them a second to recognize it was her. Her head had been cut off, and her body had been hung upside down and dressed like a deer carcass, right? Just like fucking skinned. Uh, can you imagine walking in and seeing that shit? Uh, they were, these, were, these were not hardened Brooklyn detectives. They'd probably seen, you know, uh, the worst they'd probably seen before this was like a car accident. Well, the first detective who saw, you know, what remained of Bernice immediately runs back outside, throws up in the snow. And they had just begun to uncover the outlandish horrors of Ed Gein's home. A crude wooden crossbar had been sharpened to a point at both ends, had been shoved through the tendons of Bernice's ankles. Her arms had been tied to her sides. The wooden cross hooked to a ceiling crossbeam, and then she was just hung up, you know, like that from the ceiling. Uh, more investigators arrived, and the men began searching the rest of the house by flashlight, flashlight and kerosene lamp. One of the officers first notices an odd-looking soup bowl on the kitchen table, and it, it was an odd soup bowl. It was a sawed-off, boiled, clean top of a human skull. Turns out it was one of several skull caps scattered around Gaines' house. There was also several other complete skulls in the home. A pair of human skulls had been stuck onto Eddie's bedposts. Noticing an odd-looking kitchen chair, one of the detectives realized that the woven, the woven cane seat 
had been taken out and been replaced with strips of human skin. It was one of four skin chairs to be found in Eddie's house. Detectives also found lampshades, bracelets, a wastebasket, the sheath of a hunting knife, and even a tom-tom made out of human skin. A fucking tom-tom. A human skin drum. A portable generator was brought in to light up the place and uh, light up this death house with some floodlights, give it a proper inspection. Uh, They find a belt made out of women's nipples. Yep. And a shade pole fashioned out of a pair of, uh, of a woman's lips. Holy fuck. They find a belt made out of human nipples. At one point during the search, Alan uh, Wilamowski, a crime lab specialist, picked up an old shoebox and found a sizable collection of female genitalia inside. That was how it was described when I read a sizable collection. There were nine different vulvas. Most, oh, fuck, I just want to throw up. Even to re- and I've already, and I'm already, I put this together. I already know what's coming. And I still want to throw up. They found uh, nine different vulvas. Most of them are old, dried, shriveled up. Uh, uh, daubed with silver paint, trimmed with red ribbons. I fuck Jesus. Seriously. One was fresh. The fresh one, they noticed had been sprinkled with salt. (laughs) Oh, I'm guessing that person threw up too. Hopefully he did. What if he did? What if he didn't throw up? What if you opened a box of a shoebox full of vulvas and you got a boner? That'd be bad. That'd be bad for your mental health. Like, you know, you are fucked up for life. If you open a shoebox of vulvas and immediately hard as a rock. (laughs) <laughs> Another box contained four human noses. The old nose box. Hey, uh, put that nose box on the shelf over there next to the Volvo box. There was a Quaker Oats box filled with chunks of human scalp. Uh, he kept everything. You know, waste not, want not, I guess. Probably some advice mama gave him. Uh, the nose box was strangely labeled Bojangles Good Boy Treats. Oh, no Bojangles. Eating noses with Eddie Gein? What the fuck? Bad dog. Bad dog. We can't have our one-eyed, three-legged pit bull mascot of the suck showing up in some nasty-ass episodes and eating some noses. Oh, this is also terribly creepy. Super messed up uh, uh, to remove a bunch of vulvas from women's bodies. Way creepier to keep them in a somewhat organized fashion. You know that he debated what kind of box he should use for the vulvas. Just, I, I was thinking about a, a cereal box, but it's, it's just too deep. It's too hard to, gr- to grab a vulva. You have to grab a whole handful just to get one vulva. That's that's why that's why I went with with the shoebox officers. They they should they should rename shoeboxes uh, vulva boxes. They they really are quite perfect for for vulva storage. Incredibly, this keeps getting even creepier. Investigators also found leggings made from actual human leg skin, leg skin leggings, and they found a torso vest. They found a fucking vest made out of tanned skin from a woman's torso, breasts included, breasts. Included cords woven into the skin so you could wear it nice and tight. You know, you could tie it off in your back. It's like Ed was preparing for the most horrific fashion show of all time. And you know who doesn't make a vest out of human skin? Today's sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Madison Mike's Meat Shack. Madison Mike sends the best meats on the market from his Wisconsin butcher shed right to your home. Leg meat, chest meat, face meat, vulva meat, nose meat, you name it. Mike's got it. He has the largest collection of human face masks in the Midwest area. Titty vests are the one thing Mike will not sell. And, of course, that is not one of today's sponsors. Time Suck is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Mack Mack Weldon uh, is a men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. 
Max Weldon boxer briefs are the best. And I can say that from personal experience. Man, I can say from personal experience that the online ordering situation is smooth and easy. Do it from your PC. Do it from your phone. Insanely soft with mesh zones to keep your cock and balls cool, cozy, and not smelling like Ed Gein's summer kitchen. Uh, they even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, uh, which means they eliminate odor. Even Chikatilo likes them. If, if I'm not uh, stroking uh, shame cock uh, and must wear boxer for a wedding or a formal occasion, I wear Max Weldon boxers. And I wear uh, Max Weldon boxer briefs uh, for wrestling of, of children and such. That's right. That's right. Chikatilo's getting on sponsorships now. Max Weldon wants you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. So go to MacWeldon.com, get 20% off using the promo code TIMESUCK. Link in the episode description for 20% off at MacWeldon.com using that promo code TIMESUCK. One thing Mac Weldon does not sell is skin masks. Uh, Medicine Mike may sell them. Uh, if you can find them in some parallel, parallel universe where they exist, uh, Ed Gein definitely made them. Yes, they were masks. Scary, scary masks. He made masks from the facial skin of nine separate women with their hair still attached to the scalp. Some mummified, some tanned and carefully preserved. Some still had lipstick on their mouths. Jesus Christ. And, and appeared as lifelike as backwoods skin masks uh, can, can look. Four of the skin masks had been stuffed with paper and mounted on the wall of Eddie's bedroom like hunting trophies. <sighs> I like to listen to the sounds of waves crashing or yoga-type kind of spa music to help me fall asleep. Maybe the steady hum of an air conditioner, you know, the drone of a fan. Ed apparently preferred a couple of skin masks mounted on the wall. And one of these masks, uh, one crumpled up and placed in a bag, was the facial skin of former tavern owner uh, Mary Hogan. Mystery solved. Mary has been found. She's no longer missing. She was hiding this whole time in a burlap sack at Ed's house. Another mystery was soon solved. What happened to Bernice Warden's head? Uh, It was found in a garbage sack on the floor of the summer kitchen. Other than being removed from her torso, uh, her face was undamaged. You know, except for a 10-penny nail sticking out of each ear, twine wrapped around the nails and tied together above her head so it could be hung like a fucking macabre Christmas ornament. Ugh. All the human ra- remains recovered thus far were contained in either Eddie's bedroom or the kitchen. The rest of the house was actually boarded up. Investigators were nervous what they might find. You know, what did Eddie feel it was bad enough to hide if he was leaving the rest of his shit out in the open? The rest of the house was immaculate. Looks like no one had set foot in there for years. You know, basically it looked like as if, you know, after mama dies, Eddie just boards up nearly the entire home and just left it as she had left it and then set up his little weird death factory in the bedroom and summer kitchen. How fucked up was this guy? You know? Mom, mama wouldn't like, like the mess left in the kitchen. Mom, mama wouldn't approve of the carnage, so I felt it proper to remove myself and my twisted ways from the rest of the home. Mama didn't care for most women. I, I don't think she'd be too terribly upset with me disturbing some harlots, hellish slumber, but I, I do think she would be most upset by the nip, by the nipple belt. Especially if his spectral spirit were to ever see her sweet baby boy uh, wearing the nipple belt while also wearing the titty vest, while also wearing the skin mask, and while also wearing the real leg skin leggings, all while sitting in a skin chair, masturbating into a skull bowl with one hand, rubbing a detached painted vulva with the other hand for luck. Mama always said that idle hands are the devil's workshop, and boy was she right. I mean, look at my workshop. I, I've got a shade pull made out of a woman's lips. I got faces and sacks ahead in the bag. The hardware store lady hung like a deer in the summer kitchen. Mama 
She don't want to see that. Mama don't need to see her baby boy Eddie tucking his penis between his legs, dancing in the moonlight, wearing a tavern wench's face. Would your mama want to see you wearing a titty vest, sifting through a box of noses? No, I felt it best to reduce my depravity to my bedroom and to the summer kitchen. Dark shit. Uh, There's also a rumor uh, made up by me that Ed Gein's nipple belt may have actually been a Bojangles collar. Soon after the crimes of Gein went public, dark Gein jokes started being told all across Wisconsin. Psychologists who studied this phenomenon uh, said it was a healthy coping mechanism, people's way of dealing with pure evil, the pure evil of Gein's crimes. And it's also what we hear, uh, do here on Time Suck. You know, it's what I'm doing right now. You know, so, hey, I'm not fucked up. I'm psychologically healthy. Uh, here are some of those old jokes that have been written down. Uh, why did they have to keep the heat on in Ed Gein's house? So the furniture wouldn't, wouldn't get goosebumps. That's messed up. That is kind of funny to me. Why did Ed Gein's girlfriend stop going out with him? Because he was such a cut up. Why did, again, I didn't write these. Why did Ed Gein, or what did Ed Gein say to the sheriff who arrested him? Ah, have a heart. Why won't anyone play cards with Ed Gein? He might come up with a good hand. Why did they let Ed Gein out of a jail on New Year's Eve? So he could dig up a date. Uh, Even darker. Someone in Wisconsin came up with a Gein-based parody of Twas the Night Before Christmas. We'll, we'll ride on out of this super scary stuff segment on this. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the shed, all the creatures were stirring, even old Ed. The bodies were hung from the rafters above while Eddie was searching for another new love. He went to Watoma for a Plainfield deal, looking for love and also a meal. When what to his hungry eyes should appear? But old Mary Hogan in her new red brassiere. Her eyes, how they twinkled, ever so gay, and her dimples, oh, how merry were they. Her cheeks were like roses when kissed by the sun, and she let out a scream at the sight of Ed's gun. Old Ed pulled the trigger and Mary fell dead. He took his old axe and cut off her head. He then took his hacksaw and cut her in two, one half for hamburger, the other for stew. And laying a hand aside of her heel, up to the rafters went his next meal. He sprang to his truck, to the graveyard he flew. The hours were short, and much work must he do. He looked for the grave where the fattest one laid, and started in digging with shovel and spade. He shoveled and shoveled and shoveled some more, till finally he reached the old coffin door. He took out a crowbar and pried open the box. He was not only clever, but sly as a fox. As he picked up the body and cut off her head, he could tell by the smell that the old girl was dead. He filled in the grave by the moonlight above, and once more old Ed had found a new love. He let out a yell as he drove out of sight. If I don't get caught, I'll be back tomorrow night. Wow. That takes us out of the super scary stuff. So uh, Wisconsin had a few dark laughs, thanks to Gein. Uh, unless, unless you lived in Plainfield itself, then it wasn't so funny. Plainfield had become the laughingstock of Wisconsin. The reaction there to his crimes was basically sadness and anger. Of course it was. He had been wearing their relatives. Of course, they're a little bit upset. Literally wearing their aunts, sisters, mothers. Uh, for, a, for a long time, the community experienced a sense of collective shock. And then uh, people did their best not to talk about it. You know, always funny as long as it doesn't happen to you. Isn't that the way comedy works for, for many of us? Everyone can take a joke until it hits on something you know, that emotionally triggers them, until it gets personal, and suddenly it's real serious. 
Anyway, time to check back in on the star of the show, Eddie Gain. Uh, where is the Plainsfield fiend during all of this? Um, and actually, really quick, uh, before we get back to the dates, the, the song seemed to you know indicate that he was a cannibal. There actually is no proof of cannibalism. Uh, he never confessed that. There was no evidence that he actually ever ate these people. He just seemed to have wanted the skin. And, as, and we'll talk about later, no sexual interest even, apparently. Okay, November 16th, 1957, though, back there, following his arrest... Uh, Eddie is taken to the bustling town of Watoma, just over you know 2,000 people in the self-described Christmas capital of the world, locked in the county jailhouse. Trio of guards watch over him. And then at 2.30 a.m., Sheriff Art Sheely arrives and is so disturbed by what he'd seen previously at the Gein farmhouse and is so angry that Gein has not already confessed to the murder of Bernice Warden that he grabs Gein and starts slamming him into the walls of the cell, demanding that he confessed. Uh, Gein will not, and then he reportedly assaults Gein further by banging his head face into a brick wall doing enough damage that when Gein does finally confess his initial confession is ruled as inadmissible. Sheriff Sheely was so traumatized by Gein's crimes that when he died of heart failure at the age of 43 just six years later a friend would say that Gein had killed him just as sure as he had killed Bernice. Well Gein does finally confess to the murders of both Bernice Warden and Mary Hogan and as much as Ed Gein uh, as much as he could or would confess. He remembered dragging bodies to the truck and holding a gun, but but not really pulling the trigger. You know, it's kind of one of those kind of confessions, and, and, and it would not actually land him in prison. Uh, on November 21st, 1957, Gain is arraigned on one count of first-degree murder in Washera County Court for some strange uh, budgetary reasoning. They decided against pursuing a pair of murder charges, and uh, they did not pursue a charge uh, of murder with Mary Hogan, the tavern keeper. And, and Gain pleads not guilty by reason of insanity, uh, he'd been diagnosed with schizophrenia, pleaded not guilty to the murder of Bernice Warden on the grounds of insanity in the court of Greece. Uh, of course they did. He, he was clearly batshit fucking crazy. Unfit to stand trial, he was sent to a mental hospital for the criminally insane where he would spend the next 11 years. And during uh, investigation after Gein confessed to the killings, he, he basically answered any and all questions about what went on in his house of horrors. He ended up telling authorities that for a five-year period beginning in 1947, he made as many as 40 visits to local cemeteries. Most of his initial visits were used to build up the courage to commit the eventual grave robbing. Then, on later occasions, he felt compelled to dig up a body and take it home. He only took home uh, newly, uh, freshly, I guess, dead women, middle-aged or older, whose obituaries he'd read about in local papers. Uh, he'd actually known some of these women while they were alive. He also confessed to wearing the uh, skin masks, to wearing the torso skin suit, to uh, wearing the leggings made from actual leg skin. This is, this is the scariest part of this episode to me, the creepiest part. Once he had all that on... He would also strap on one of those preserved vulvas over his penis. And then on warm nights, out under the moonlight, he would just walk around the farm in his skin suit, pretending to be a lady. Holy shit. What, what a picture that paints. Especially when you, look, when you look at photos of this guy, this middle-aged country bumpkin-looking motherfucker. He looked, he looked more like Elmer Fudd than a drag queen. And just walking around the farm in a skin suit. Imagine if you're some local kid who'd snuck out of the house. And he ended up running across that. God, you would never sneak out again. You'd never be the same again. That would traumatize you. So how did it get to that point? How did Gein go, you know, become a monster? You know, you don't, you don't wake up, you know, fairly mentally healthy one morning and then strap on a homemade skin suit, put a vulva over your dick before you go to bed that night. That, that, that's a progression to get there. Well, Gein would later confess that he spent a long time brooding after his mother's death in 1945. You know, old fire and brimstones passing really bummed him out. You know, who, who was going to make him fearful of the world now? Who was going to tell him that he's going to go to hell? Who was going to warn him about harlot sin tunnels? 
Well, then a strange compulsion emerges in him to visit local cemeteries. And then after, you know, a, f- a first, you know, a couple uh, exploratory trips initially, he begins digging into fresh graves. You know, he, he'd been wondering if it was possible to become a woman since before his mother died. And now he kind of wondered if he could basically change his sex himself. You know, maybe he can't get to Denmark over for that surgery, but could he, you know, could he, could he do it to himself? For a while, he actually toyed with the idea of performing gender reassi- reassignment, excuse me, surgery upon himself. Yeah. He was almost insane enough to cut off his own dick and try to like glue on a vagina or some nonsense. Well, once he abandoned the idea of surgery, the strange fascination with creating a weird sort of woman suit emerges. You know, if he couldn't become a woman, uh, you know, he could at least dress himself up in the skin, scalp, and genitalia of a woman, right? Because, you know, that's not the scariest fucking thing ever or anything. Uh, but the old skin he was taking out of freshly buried corpses, you know, just wasn't good enough. Felt he needed fresher skin. And this is how he came to kill Mary Hogan, the tavern owner. She physically resembled his mom. It would be perfect. He'd create a fresh skin and genitalia suit. And, you know, he'd just become his mom. Ta-da! You know, this was actually a plan of his. Not sure he thought of it exactly, you know, these terms, but it's what he did try to do. His fascination with his mom is what makes it all that much, you know, weirder. You know, he didn't try to just become any old woman. He, he wasn't transgender. He wanted to become his mother. He wanted to become one woman. Like, you know, he wanted to trans- physically transform into her. He was a very sick man. His, cri- his crimes were not sexual. Uh, they were somehow even more perverse, though, you know? And this need to become his mother is why one day he snuck up on Mary Hogan when no one else was at the tavern, and he just shot her in the back of the head with a thirty-two caliber Mauser. And several years later, he killed Bernice Warden for the same reason, you know, in much the same fashion. She reminded him of his mom, and he wanted her skin. You know, no big whoops, you know? He just wanted to turn the hardware store lady into a mommy skin suit. I'm, I'm sure she'd understand if she could. Uh, the trial of Ed Gein became national news. Of course it did especially back in the 1950s when gory details were not part of our kind of everyday internet-based lives. You didn't have time to talk to do. Uh, people were morbidly fascinated with the highly unusual details of this case. There had never been another criminal quite like him, at least not in U.S. history. He made a fucking skin suit. He had a nipple belt. He dug up the bodies of women, killed women, looked like his mom. Gein's crimes made the cover of Life magazine. A house of horror stuns nation. You know, the case also re- received national uh, coverage in magazines like Time magazine. Psychiatrists and criminal psychologists especially fascinated. You know, one referred to him as one of the most dramatic human beings ever to confront society. He was the strangest manifestation of the Oedipus complex they'd ever heard of. They believed him to have a highly unique combination of violent hatred towards his mother and also godlike worship of her. Necrophilia was even tossed out, even though there's no evidence that Gein ever committed any sexual acts on his victims or on the bodies or body parts he took from graves. He didn't admit to have sex uh, with corpses in any way. Uh, said the smell repulsed him. You know, he, was, he wasn't a pervert. He was a ghoul. Ged was given a, a thorough psych eval. His, his IQ was determined to be 99, so, you know, low average. He possessed a strong feminine identification, bizarre religious beliefs, a tendency to project the blame for evil on some other person, uh, a strikingly immature level of sexuality characterized by strong feelings of guilt. He was a very suggestible person who appears emotionally dull, Beneath that lies aggressiveness that may be expressed by inappropriate reactions that are followed by remorse and mild-manneredness. He is an immature person who withdraws and finds forming relationships with others difficult. He has rather rigid moral concepts which he expects others to follow. Uh, Yeah, he also tried to blame his neighbors for his crimes, adamantly stating that if they just would have visited him more, he would have led a normal life. Yet no, no, no he wouldn't. Uh, you know, he said he would have married if only the morality of Plainfield women wasn't so terribly low. I mean, Mama really twisted his screws, didn't she? He claimed his two victims had terribly low morality. Mary Hogan had a filthy mouth. 
and may have been involved in immoral business dealings in Chicago. Uh, Mrs. Warden was a homewrecker, and her husband's ex-wife killed herself when he left her for Bernice. You know, a mother despised these type of women, and he felt his mom would have would have thought they got some justice and would have approved on some level uh, of him killing him, you know, or them. You know, they de- they deserved it. I love how people rationalize, like like lunatics rationalize stuff. You know, I mean, she she had a potty mouth, so how could I not turn her into a skin suit? She she brought it on herself. Uh, he also denied sexual attraction to either victim, denied ever having a sexual experience in his life other than occasional masturbation. Although Ed would deny it himself, he, he would weep when speaking of his mother uh, because he loved her so much. Psychiatrists felt that when he killed Mary and Bernice, he was also killing his mother. And that's what he would deny. He would deny that he was trying to kill his mom. He denied any feelings of angst towards her. You know, but apparently, uh, you know, a part of him despised and hated her. According to the psychologist, the psychiatrist, she had tormented him and ruined his life. You know, and it was just that, that part of him he was just unwilling or unable to face. And then in 1968, Gein was somehow declared fit to stand trial. Uh, some doctors determined that he had mentally recovered enough to take responsibility for his crimes. He was mentally able to confer with counsel and participate in his defense. So a trial began on November 7th, 1968, and it just lasted for a week. A psychiatrist testified that Gein had told him that he did not know whether the killing of Bernice Warden was intentional or accidental. Gein had told him that while he examined a gun in Warden's store, the gun went off, killing Warden. You know, oh, whoops. Oh, did I do that? Uh, Gein testified that after trying to load a bullet into the rifle, it discharged. You know, that's, that's, he, was just, he was just randomly putting a bullet in there. You know, it looked like a good place to get his gun ready for some hunting uh, in the middle of a tavern. Uh, he said he had not aimed the rifle at Warden. No, of course not. It was an all, all an accident and, and did not remember anything else that happened that morning. You know, uh, I, I, I'm not particularly sure I aimed it upon her. I, I may have I may have just been showing her my gun because I thought it was a mighty fine rifle. Uh, she probably asked to look inside the barrel to to examine it. I, I cannot quite recall. She may have said, oh, Ed, the, the safety's on, silly. Just pointed at me and pulled the trigger for a nice laugh for the both of us. I, I cannot quite recall. Uh, Gein's trial held without a jury. Judge Robert H. Golmar presided, and Gein was found guilty by Golmar on November 14th, guilty of murder. However, a second trial dealt with Gein's sanity, and after testimony by doctors for the prosecution and defense, Golmar ruled Gein not guilty by reason of insanity and ordered him committed to Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. So essentially, the whole trial was a huge fucking waste of everyone's time, uh, like too many trials seem to be. Uh, Interesting note regarding the insanity ruling, one psychiatrist said that if anyone was ever crazy, it was Gein. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Uh, the people of Plainfield, however, were outraged. They felt like he was faking it, man. He went to school with them. He'd watch their kids. He'd work with them on their farms. They felt like he was only crazy when he wanted to be crazy. They, they, also, had a, they also had a cumulative total of zero mental health degrees amongst them. Uh, sane or not, and I think not, uh, Gein spent the rest of his life in a mental health facility. And he appeared to be really, really happy there, actually, for the most part. Uh, you got three square meals. There were people to talk to. What a sad commentary on your former life when after being committed to a mental institution, you're the happiest you've ever been. Uh, he was a content, docile patient who never uh, needed to be tranquilized, never wanted to leave. Uh, not, for, not for many years, at least. In 1974, he did start to get some cabin fever and petitioned to be reevaluated to see if he could be discharged back into society. Uh, he was reevaluated and still deemed a threat. His psychosis believed to be simmering right under the surface and able to be activated under the right conditions. And then on July 26, 1984, Ed Gein died of lung cancer at the Mendota Mental Health Institute in Madison, Wisconsin. He was 77. And that takes us out of this time suck timeline. 
Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Ed Gein, man, the ghoul, the fiend, the butcher of Plainfield. What a tremendously disturbed individual. I, I get why he won the bonus vote. There is something darkly fascinated about a man who not only actually attempts to make a human skin suit, but does make one and wears it. And and then you throw in the, the strange mother relationship, the isolation, the grave robbing, the chairs made out of skin. I mean, what a strange monster. Uh, curious what the internet thinks of Gein. Let's find out in today's Idiots of the Internet. Under a video uh, of an Ed Gein documentary called Ed Gein, the Real Leatherface, Leatherface, excuse me, user John Doe gets straight into posting idiot gold. It's gold in this thread. It's gold. Great big nuggets. Idiot gold. John Doe posts, Ed Gein is a living legend. And to make it better, this is an edited post. Dude, he died in eight, uh, 1984, long before YouTube was a thing. How do you not understand that you have to be alive to be a living legend? I mean, I, I would get if you posted he was a living legend. A legend in his own time. Like, that might work. And you edited this. You had a chance to change it to, uh, he is a legend. But nope. Uh, it's going to go with, yep, he is a living legend. Okay. Uh, user Dirty Blonde posts, he wasn't a bad man. He was just misunderstood. Uh, no. No, I think he was pretty bad. I think uh, murdering definitely falls into the bad category. Uh, the thinking that, you know, Mrs. Corden got what was coming to her because she was an immoral lady definitely falls into the bad category. A user Sharon Morin goes full Captain Obvious. I love this with her post. It's a horrible thing to kill and hurt people. Oh, incredible, astute observation, Sharon. Way to knock that out of the park. A lot of ambivalence about whether or not he was a good dude before you chimed in, before you showed up at the party. You're right. It is horrible to kill and hurt people, Sharon. Thanks for clearing that up, genius. Uh, user Lou goes full misguided social justice warrior. Posting, yet people don't realize that the hunters, animal killers, butchers, and animal abusers have a lot in common. People work at dairy farms, slaughterhouses, and leather farms do more or less similar things to those poor, defenseless animals. First off, Lou, shut the fuck up. Uh, Second, that felt good to say that first thing. Third, people do realize it is the same. uh, As far as, you know, like wearing a leather jacket or leather shoes go, I guess that's comparable to wearing human skin. But Lou, do you ever think about why we do that? It has historical reasons. Ancient tribes and ancient peoples either wore animal skin or fucking froze to death. And this tradition carried forward into modern fashion. And wearing cow leather is a far cry from wearing human skin, you moron. Humans have not historically needed to eat other humans. We're on the same level of the food pyramid, on the food chain. Right? Uh, You know, food (laughs) food chain, not food pyramid. Uh, Cattle, for example, are beneath us. You know, and if you're some bleeding heart that does think animals should, should never be slaughtered for food, what the fuck do you think happens to them if they're never hunted? This is the argument I always use. Do, do you think that just bunnies and deer and cows, you know, just play hopscotch and shit and drink milkshakes and cuddle up together in some Disney version of the woods? No, they just die. They they still fucking die. Usually of disease, starvation, being eaten by some predator that gives the prey a death that is far more drawn out and painful than a hunter's bullet or a slaughterhouse's whatever the hell they use to kill animals. Look, I love animals. Love my two dogs, and I do have two now. That little sister for Penny now, Ginger. Ginger Bell. She's probably going to get a horrible nickname soon, like Penny Poopers. She's a chewer. I have a feeling that she's a bad seed. She's cute but naughty. She's got a little Lucifina in her. 
Uh, but anyways, I love them. I love them. But I don't let that love corrode my brain into thinking that animals should live, you know, uh, and unnatural lives or, or could live unnatural lives out in nature. Death is just part of the circle of life. So I always get so annoyed when people are like, well, think about what they do to animals when hunters, what they do to animals. Yeah, what they do is fucking not as bad as what nature does to them. And I will end on something I don't think is idiotic at all, uh, just including it because I think it's funny. Uh, user Mike Mendio, uh, he asks, an artist at heart, I, w- I wonder what a genuine handcrafted nipple belt would run for nowadays. That is so funny to me. Uh, as gross as that is, you know that people would pay a lot of money for a human nipple belt. I'm going to say, I'm going to answer Mike's questions here, uh, or his question. I'm going to say 25000 plus. I'm going to say not a lot of bidders for a human nipple belt, not like a tremendous amount, but you're going to get a couple of very serious bidders. Uh, now think about this, though. What if you had a nipple belt made from the nipples of other serial killers? Hmm? Now we're talking six figures, if not probably seven. You get a belt made with the nipples of Dahmer, Gacy, Gein, other, who buddy, that's some serious nipple belt cash you're going to be pulling in. That's the mother of all nipple belts right there. Or what if maybe you could even make more money if you could have a nipple belt made of deceased sex symbols, nipples? Like what if you had a belt like made out of like Marilyn Monroe, Betty Page, Anna Nicole Smith, Jane Mansfield, nipples? Okay, I'm going to stop now because I'm starting to creep myself out with all my nipple belt talk. Uh, Ed Gein has gotten really into my head. Let's get, let's get the hell out of here. So that's Eddie. That's Eddie. Not really a serial killer, I guess. You know, according to the FBI profilers, uh, a true serial killer is someone who commits at least three murders over more than a month with an emotional cooling off period in between. That's the FBI's definition. And and Ed killed, I, th- I think, just two people. Some people think he killed more. There were a couple of the people who went missing between the time his mom died and he was apprehended. You know, those those crimes were alluded to in that in that newspaper article earlier. But but none of them looked like his mom, and none of them really fit kind of the mo. Uh, what a twisted, twisted dude, though. What a strange, you know, place the human mind is able to go to. Uh, gotta say, Gein disgusts me, but doesn't inspire hatred uh, the way a serial killer like, say, Ted Bundy does with me. Like, you know, Bundy wanted to inflict so much pain on his victims, so much suffering. He was so aggressive, so manipulative, so just uh, monstrous and sadistic that way, so evil in that way. Gein just comes across as sad and confused to me. Like, you know, he, he just was a weird mama's boy who wanted to turn into his mom, and he needed some lady skin to pull that off. I, I think a killer like Bundy would have looked down on Gein, you know, would have possibly just been disgusted by him. As fucked up as Chikatilo was, at least his motive was a little easier to wrap your head around, you know? It was, it was sexual. He got sexual satisfaction through violence. Super fucked up. But anyone who's had a sexual urge of any kind, you know, hopefully all of us can understand the need to satisfy it. You know, you're horny and you want a climax. And, and unfortunately, you know, Chikatilo was a monster. And, you know, climaxed in, in the worst of ways. But Gein was a different type of creep entirely. He didn't seem like he uh, got any sexual satisfaction from killing. He, he, didn't, he didn't even really want to kill you. He just, he wanted your skin. He wanted your nose. He wanted your nipples and your vulva. You know, that's all. Uh, and that's really all there is to Ed. So let's take a few looks back before we get out of here with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Ed Gein killed two people, but the parts of many others were found in his home due to continual grave robbing in the final years before he was apprehended. Number two, Gein killed both of his victims because they physically resembled his mother, the woman who dominated him so thoroughly he never left home until authorities took him to jail and never even had a girlfriend. 
may be the only infamous killer to both live a long life and also die a virgin. Number three, dude made a vest out of women's torso. Made a vest out of a woman's torso, complete with breasts, still attached, tanned like it was an animal mount, right? Wore it around the farm at night while also wearing a vulva and leggings made out of leg skin and also a human face mask. A real-life leather face without the chainsaw. Number four, Gein turned some of his home into a nightmare factory after his mother, Augusta, died, but only a few rooms. His mother had such a powerful hold over him that even in death, that he cordoned off most of the house to leave it as she had left it and to separate his sick obsession with the memories of sweet Pierre Mama. Number five, new info. On March 20th, 1958, while Gein was uh, you know, in, in detention, while he was in jail, his house burned to the ground. Arson was suspected. The belief is that some local residents did it, and I bet you they did, to prevent the home from turning into some kind of morbid curiosity museum. Good for them. Protect the town from further embarrassment. Between the, the murderous rivalry and Ed Gein, uh, Plainfield didn't need to be reminded of any local darkness. When Gein learned of the incident, he shrugged and said, uh, Oh, dang, I, I was hoping to get out and retrieve the many other nipple belts and titty vests I still have hidden inside. No, no, he didn't say that. He actually only said, just as well. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Ed Gein sucked. Weirdest suck so far for me. Man, that guy was uh, creepy. I'm going to be haunted by the mental image of him walking around the farm alone in the middle of the night wearing that uh, whole suit of his, all that get up, coming home and relaxing in his skin chair, sitting alone in a room of skulls and boxes of parts. Haunting. But now it's over. And it's the weirdest suck so far. Recording this in the past once again, so I don't know which topic won the Space Lizard vote uh, for the topic of, of, of Monday, March 5th. Uh, but I'm guessing, based on uh, current vote counts, it's either Nordic Gods or Jack the Ripper. Never would have guessed Nordic Gods would be a popular topic. I love how you all surprise me. And again, if you're having trouble with the Secret Suck features, give the Patreon post a little look-see, a little look-over. And, uh, and remember, you can also vote uh, in the topic voting on the web, not just in the app. And know that we're working on it all. We're working on it all. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, whatever listener bought so much stuff for their business last week by clicking the Amazon link at timesuckpodcast.com to do your shopping first. Holy shit. Much appreciated. Uh, no extra cost to you, but really just helped me out a lot. Whoever just spent over 60 grand on their on Amazon, uh, I don't know if, you, if, if you're doing some work purchases, but if whatever you were doing, please keep doing that. So grateful. And some people ask, like, where is that link? You just have to scroll down to find the link on the website. It's on the homepage right underneath uh, the Now in the Shop store link right there, that little Amazon button. Now, come out and see me, damn it, and have a great time. Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, Huntsville, Nashville, Houston, Dallas, San Francisco, not Plainfield, all coming up in April. Everything but San Francisco in one big week. More info up at dancummins.tv. Check out the dates. The Flat Earth Tour It's going strong now. Snatch up some tickets, wear, wear your Time Suck shirts, or don't just show up and have a great damn time. Big thanks to social media master and manager Sydney Shives, events coordinator and amazing patron saint of the at Secret Space Lizards social media accounts, Harmony Velikamp, show notes editor extraordinaire Jesse Dobner, and the entire Time Suck team, including interns Maddie Teeter and Deanna, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Deanna Marino. Thanks for all the reviews, spreading the suck. Every review helps every time, and you guys write the most wonderful things, and I read every review. Uh, thanks for the email. Sorry I can't get back to each and every one. Just not enough hours in the day. Thanks to all you suckers uh, who suggested this topic. 
Uh, much appreciated. Uh, this Monday on Time Suck, we suck on David Koresh and the Waco Siege on the Branch Davidian compound. Colt, Colt, Colt. David Koresh, the mullet-wearing, having leader of the Branch Davidian cult. Uh, Koresh joined a spiritual group that was based on the Mount Carmel Center outside Waco, Texas. Uh, he's based there. Uh, where the group took the name Branch Davidians. Once a member of the group, he competed for dominance with another leader named George Roden until Roden was jailed for murdering another rival for leadership. Man, rivals killing each other to become leaders of a cult? Huh? I'm in. Koresh led his cult uh, in a 51-day defense of an armed FBI siege against his Waco compound. Over 80 cult members would die between a fire and a gunfight with ATF that also took the lives of four federal agents. Excited to dig into that shit for sure. And now it is time for some Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Kicking these updates off with some humor and some inspiration. A little uh, inspiring update from Colby Rea, fantastic sucker. With a subject line of Master Sucker, witness of Nimrod's radiant taint and father of the tiny monk who professes the apocalypse of dwarf logs and ants. I like the stand-up reference. And Colby says, Good evening, motherfucker. I mean, master sucker. Wait, master fucker. I am but a lowly intern to our reptilian overlords, the space lizard and avid listener of Time Suck. I am also a marine and correctional officer, left for the Corps immediately after high school, and thus have never truly seen myself going to college. I chose careers not only by a sense of duty, but somewhat subconsciously on the fact that promotion is due to merit and time served in many cases as opposed to education. I almost pride myself in saying ignorant shit like college is just a piece of paper and I know all I need to. Hard work is the real key to success. If you ever hear that, know that it is from a moron like myself trying to convince themselves that their own stupidity is permissible. Then I heard the Pizzagate episode where you tore fuck faces like myself, new asshole, and I realized how idiotic I was being. In your comedic wisdom, you forced me to look into a mirror and I saw the dunce hat that most people have noticed up to now, that most people must have noticed up to now, it was exactly three feet tall and six inches wide at the base, the exact dimensions of Bojangles' red rocket, in case you're curious. I have finally decided to attend my local college and start being part of the solution uh, to, these, to this country's descent into idiocracy instead of a contributor. Thanks for all the laughs, stories, and the rekindling of my curiosity that will hopefully propel me into greater future success. May you suck hard and deep on the big dick of knowledge. Hail Nimrod. Superfan Colby Ray. Yeah, I said Ray up top. Colby Ray. Colby Ray. Colby Ray. Well, wow. Thank you, Colby. And uh, and a huge thank you for your time served, man. That is, you are really inspiring to me, man. You inspire me. I'll have you know that uh, I'm thinking about going back to school myself at some point. And I don't and I don't need to for work, but I just uh, enjoy the process of learning stuff. You know, I don't have time for it at the moment to try to get all these podcast shit uh, going and stand-up touring and family life, you know, all organized. Uh, but there is an online history masters I have my eye on. The more research uh, I do, the more re- I realize, you know, how little I know. I joke about my pronunciation all the time in the show, but it comes from probably the same good enough place you're talking about. You know, I didn't have a chance to take Latin and stuff like that in grade school and high school. And then in college, you know, I honestly just kind of focus more on getting a good grade than actually learning, if that makes sense. You know, do what it takes to get the A and then forget about it and get drunk. That was my MO for four years. Now at 40, I get the real importance of knowledge. You know, it's the only chance a little guy or little gal has against, you know, kind of not getting squashed by the powers that be. You know, get educated. They are. Everyone, including myself, made fun of things that George W. Bush said when he was president, but that motherfucker went to Yale. He is not a dummy. People are constantly saying Trump's an idiot. No, he's not. 
Dude studied real estate at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League. Obama got a bachelor's from Columbia and then went to Harvard Law School. Not a dummy either. And look, man, you can be very intelligent and immensely successful uh, without ever setting foot in a college classroom. I get it. I truly don't think it's necessary or something that everyone needs to do, but I do think education increases the odds that you will be more successful in life in general and just a better person. I don't use my college degree. You know, I sure as shit didn't need a a bachelor's in psychology from Gonzaga to get into stand-up and podcasting, but the work ethic I picked up regarding cranking out research papers has for sure helped me here. I wouldn't be able to do time suck without that skill set. And when I showed up to Gonzaga, I was super closed-minded about a lot of stuff. Definitely opened my eyes, you know, to see a lot of other viewpoints. Be willing to rethink my beliefs. So kudos to you, Colby Ray. Hope you have a great time, learn a ton of shit, and just kill it in life in general. Hail Nimrod, brother. All right, numerous time suckers rode in over the past week uh, with a Slenderman update. Wonderful suckers such as Helena Clark, whom I met in New York City this past Sunday night, who was fantastic. Helena writes... Elon Musk has finally sent Starman in his own Tesla Roadster headed to Mars and beyond. Uh, so that's awesome. That's referring to an old Time Suck episode that the Mars exploration is, is, is you know, in, it's going along in, in a further stage. And, uh, and the last Slenderman defendant has been sentenced to 40 years in a mental hospital. Uh, what will be next for 2018? Definitive proof that the lizard Illuminati abandoned Hillary and used all the resources to get Trump elected in return for the country's monoatomic gold rights? Maybe we shall see in a future episode of Time Suck. Well, back to stomping Cocker Spaniels in praise of Nimrod. Brilliant update, Helena. Uh, so many fantastic inside references packed into one wonderful paragraph, you beautiful space lizard. Yes, on February 1st, Morgan Geyser, 15, was ordered to spend 40 years in a mental institution instead of serving, uh, instead of serving jail time. Man, so much Wisconsin talk. So much Wisconsin suck going on right now. 40 years. Now, Geyser was diagnosed with schizophrenia a few months after the attack, you know, just like Gein had schizophrenia. Wow, my 40 years. I was really torn when I first read about this. I mean, she did stab a little girl and leave her for dead, but she's also mentally ill. And at the time of her offense, she was only 12 years old. An immature 12-year-old at that. You know, what if in 10 years they find a definitive cure for schizophrenia? Some, some new drug or procedure that treats it far more effectively than anything before. Should she still have to stay there for 40 years? You know, I, I, was, I was thinking, God, man, there's, I hope there's a clause in her sentence where she doesn't. You know, it bothers me that serial rapists and actual murderers get lighter sentence, you know, lighter sentences than this all the time. She was a first-time offender, but then I did a little further sucking, did some further research, and there is a clause. She can actually um, uh, be able to apply uh, for supervised release after only three more years. And if she's released early, she'll remain under state supervision until she's 37. So I got to say, what she did was horrific, but that seems fair. You know, she committed a terrible crime. She's been punished with three years of imprisonment already, and she has between three and 40 years of confinement yet to go. All right. Time sucker Megan, uh, not sure she wants her obviously last Polish name revealed, sent to me a uh, hilarious message at Bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com the other day. Check this nonsense out. Uh, Megan wrote, I figured you would get a kick out of this. I just jokingly asked my husband if we could role play after watching a Valentine's episode of Modern Family. You know what he said? Can I be Andre Chicotillo? Thanks for traumatizing my sexy time. Curse you, Lucifina. Keep on sucking. Well, Megan, I did get a kick out of that for sure. That is uh, hilarious and creepy. Uh, I hope that after uh, today's episode, your man doesn't want to role play as Ed Gein and wear your body as a lady suit. Uh, If you suddenly go missing, I have your full name and email address, and I will not hesitate to notify authorities. Have fun. Stay safe. Don't become a skin suit. And hail Nimrod. Okay, last one. Quick IRA update from Space Lizard, Ariston Bowers. Suckmaster Flexius Maximus, I just wrapped up your IRA episode and wanted to recommend a movie for you. It's called 71, 
as in like the year 71. And not many people I know have seen it. It's very relevant to the topic of this week. Also a very good movie, 95% Rotten Tomatoes approval. In fact, it's one of the most memorable movies I've seen in the last three years. Remember the movie Behind Enemy Lines with Owen Wilson? Similar to that, only it's Belfast during 1971 versus Serbia in the mid-90s. I signed up and happy to say I'm proud. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a proud space lizard and planning on coming to your show at the Punchline in Atlanta on April 9th. Oh, yes. Thanks for all your hard work and providing educational and funny entertainment each and every week. Thanks again, Harrison Bowers. P.S. Rotten Tomato links to movie. And I'm going to put those uh, those links will be in the uh, on the podcast, on the website, where you can get the PDF downloaded the show notes. The link should be active there if you guys want to check out the trailer or you can just search it. Well, thanks, Ariston. I'm including your link. Yeah, like I just said. And uh, I, I did never watch Behind Enemy Lines with Owen Wilson uh, and Gene Hackman, actually. Uh, need to see both movies now. So I need to see 71. And I hope we get some time to do so. That IRA episode was a tough one to do. So complicated. And again, shitty Irish accent. Sorry to all of those of you who had to suffer through that. I kind of stayed away from Wisconsin. Out of, out of, I needed a week off of uh, trying to do new accents. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was good for me. Maybe I needed to eat some humble pie this week. And thank you, everyone, for all of the updates. You, time suckers, and space lizards are the damn best. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. So that's all for today, time suckers. Enjoy your weekend. Hope you enjoyed the bonus suck. Please do not dig up. Uh, any bodies or kill anyone so you can try to turn their corpses into human skin suits. It's very rude and it's super illegal and the creepiest, most disgusting shit I've maybe ever heard of. Hail Nimrod. Praise sweet baby Bojangles. Glory be to Michael motherfucking McDonald, sweet James Jimmy Ingram, and keep on sucking. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But... What you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck 
today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash time suck.